Well, yes, I did have second thoughts when I realized what the passage was this week, and I began to think, why did I not give this week away to somebody instead of myself? But it is what it is, and uh, this is the passage that I have for the week. So, well, how many of you um, have seen this circle before? I'm going to put up a picture of a circle, I think. (laughs) How many of y'all have seen this circle before? Quite a few of you. Uh, It is one of the three circles in the booklet that Campus Crusade uses to talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the Spirit-filled life. And the first time that I saw this circle and those three circles, I was a junior at LSU. And my life was a mess. I was a Christian at the time, but my life was just, it didn't reflect that of a Christian. I was into the party scene. Um... I just didn't know how to get back on track. And Bonnie, who was on staff with Campus Crusade, uh, met with me on a Friday afternoon in my dorm. And we talked for a while, and then she showed me the three circles in this booklet and asked me, where are you? Which light, which circle best describes where you are? And I pointed to this one, and I said, this is my life. Christ is in my life. I am a believer, but I am sitting on the throne of my life and not him. And that is a question that I want us to think about today. Who is on the throne of your life today? And this week we studied the passage of 1 Peter 3, 8 to 22. And there was so much in this passage. It was a little bit overwhelming. Uh, And so I tried to narrow it down to just one main point, one big idea that we could walk out of here with. And I chose a key verse to kind of wrap the talk around. And so the key verse for me from this passage is 1 Peter 3.15, and I put it on the uh, PowerPoint for you. But 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And that verse is not a sentence by itself. It is actually the middle of a longer sentence that begins in verse 14 and it ends in verse 16. And the beginning of that sentence in verse 14, it gives a contrast. And verse 14 tells us what not to do in contrast to sanctifying Christ as Lord. And so verse 14 reads, and I also put this up here for you, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Why does he make that contrast here? Why would sanctifying Christ as Lord be an answer for fear and being troubled by suffering? Why would you choose sanctifying Christ over fear and being troubled? Because when we hand things over to him and his lordship, when we trust him with our lives completely, 
we don't need to be afraid about anything. We don't need to worry about how things are going to turn out because we know God's got this. And we turn it all over to him and we trust his character, his sovereignty. God, you know what you're doing. You're in control. I don't need to worry. I don't need to be afraid of persecution or whatever might come. And so the exhortation for us this week from this passage is to sanctify Christ as Lord in your life. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to address three questions about this exhortation. We're going to look first at what does it mean. Then we're going to look at, well, how does it look when I sanctify Christ? As Lord, And then the third question is, why should we do it? Why should we sanctify him as Lord? And so we're going to jump in first with, what does it mean to sanctify Christ as Lord in your life, in your heart? A simple definition of what it means. It just means to turn everything over to him. Just to let go and give it to him. You live to please him and to glorify him. When you sanctify him as Lord in your life, you give him control, you let go of the reins, you step off that throne of your heart. Sanctifying Christ means that we are not satisfied with anything less than God's will in our lives. We don't want anything else. We want his will, even if it's not what we think we want. That's what it means to sanctify Christ. It's saying, I trust you here. Here's the throne. Here's my life. You do with it as you want. And I remember when Bonnie first showed me those circles in that blue booklet. I knew exactly where I was. I told you, I was in that circle where I was sitting on the throne, and Christ was down beside the throne, waiting for me to get off. To make him Lord, I had to step down and relinquish all control of my life. I had to give it to him. And that meant that I had to trust him for what he was going to do with my life. But I was hesitant. I had fears about it. One of the fears, and I I think I've shared this with you before, but one of the the hesitations I have in stepping off that throne and making him Lord was my life was such a mess at that time. And I remember Bonnie and I talked on a Friday. Um, That Sunday we spent some time together, and that Sunday night we sat out in front of my dorm for hours and talked about it. And I said, Bonnie, I want to give him control of my life. I want to make him Lord. But my life is such a mess right now that I need to clean it up first. Then I can hand it to him proudly. Here it is, Lord. What do you think? And she laughed and she said, it's never going to happen. If you wait until you get your life straightened out, it'll never happen. You need to step off the throne. You need to give him control. You need to sanctify him as Lord in your life. And you let him clean up the mess. And that's what I did. And she was so right, because there's no way I could have changed my life. It was only as I depended and drew from the power of the Holy Spirit in me that I saw my life change. 
Another hesitation I had was fear of what God might do if I gave him my life. I mean, God, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to make me do? I had visions of you're going to make me be a missionary and live over in Africa. Uh, You're going to make me be single all my life. You're going to make me do a job that I don't want to do. There were all these thoughts that I had of what is he going to do with my life if I hand it over to him? You know, what if you ask me to do something I just don't want to do? But I chose to hand my life over to him on that night in January, 19, and I'm not going to tell you the year, 19 whatever, I remember very vividly that night, and it was after 10 o'clock, and I went into my dorm room. My roommate wasn't there yet, and I got on my knees, and I pulled out this booklet, and I turned to the prayer, and I prayed it in my own words, and I said, here it is, Lord. I have a messy life, but it's yours, and you're Lord, and I step off that throne, and I visually pictured stepping down off the throne and saying, here, it's yours. And you know, um, some of those things that I feared did come true, but they weren't bad things. I thought they were bad things. I mean, I had the fear of being single all my life, and here I am, and I'm single. But I'll be honest, at this point, I would never, I, I don't think I'd trade in my singleness for a husband at this point. Because I realized, God, you wanted me for yourself to serve you without any other distractions. And when I look at you young moms and how many places, you know, you're so busy. That's what God has called you to. But he's called me to something different. And I accept that with joy. Now, I didn't always say that. I do now. But that wasn't a bad thing. That was God's plan for my life. I wouldn't have written that script for my life. But he did, and I accept it with joy. You know, uh, I was afraid he would send me off to Africa. Well, he didn't send me to Africa, but he sent me four years to East Asia. And those were the best four years of my life. Yeah, we may think, God, you're going to make me do something I don't want to do. But you know what? We can rest in the fact that God knows what's best. He knows what the, the bigger picture is. He knows his plan for us. You know, and today, I can't wait to get on that plane next Tuesday and go back to India. God knows what he has in store for you. Hand it over. Don't hesitate because you're afraid of what he's going to do. What he does is his best for you. And just to say that one time of lordship, I think back to that Sunday night in January as a junior at LSU, as a turning point in my life. That was the first time that I said, here, Lord. But that's not a one-time decision like salvation. Salvation, you accept Christ once, and it's done. But lordship is an ongoing decision that we make over and over. Sometimes it's a daily decision. Because we, in our human nature, want to step back on that throne. And we may take over. But then we are convicted and we say, oops, I took charge there. 
I confess it, and I give you back that throne. I want you to be Lord. It is an ongoing lifetime making that decision of lordship. So that's the first question. It just means handing everything over. What does it mean? It means giving everything to him, wanting his will in my life more than my will. So second, what does that look like? when we sanctify Christ as Lord in our lives. Well, Peter mentions a number of characteristics of what he's asking them to to have true in their lives in verses 8 and 9. And these qualities, he's saying them as commands, but these qualities he's commanding them would be the very things that we should see in our lives if he's Lord of our lives. And so I'm going to run through these quickly because you've looked at them this week. I don't want to belabor it because we've got more uh, things to talk about at the end. But let me just run through these quickly. Uh, If you don't get them all down, you've got them in your book. But the first one's be harmonious. That doesn't mean that we have to like the same things. It doesn't mean that we have to have the same opinion but that we would live in harmony with one another, that we would come together, even though we may have different preferences, but we would let go of what we want and say, God, I am willing to to do what you want and what's better for the body as a whole. That we would lay that before him, that we would live harmonious instead of letting what I want divide the body. But realize that not everybody in the body has the same preferences of things that I do. It's not bad. It's just different. We would live harmonious, giving up what I think should be done and the way it should be done for the, for the body, for the sake of the body. Be harmonious. Don't be a divisive troublemaker that tears the body down. Because you want it your way. Second, be sympathetic. Show mercy to others, just like Christ showed to us. You know, being sympathetic means you show care and concern for somebody when they're having a hard time. You have compassion toward others. You have, you're sensitive when you, you see somebody and you go, are you okay today? You're just, you're showing that sympathy. Third, be brotherly. Love them like family. And I know some of you are thinking, I don't love my family. But for the most part, just think bigger picture. We, We typically do love our family, our kids, our brothers, our sisters. Love them like family. Care for them. Protect them. Look after them. Fourth, be kind hearted. Be kind to one another. Don't be harsh. Cruel to one another, putting people down, critical. Be kind-hearted. Fifth, be humble. And being humble just means having an honest perspective of yourself before God. You don't, that doesn't mean that you downplay or minimize your, your worth or your abilities, but you don't brag about them either. You have an honest opinion of who you are, and you recognize that who you are and what God has given you isn't because of you, it's because of him. And you just keep pride out of the way. The sixth 
thing he says is be gracious. Don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. And that's not our natural response. I shared last week in your study about that, that instructor in my med tech lab that was so cruel to me with her words and the way she treated me. And I tell you, I wanted to just belt her. I wanted to just say, I mean, I'd already planned what I was going to tell her the next day, that I was going to make her feel just as bad as she made me. That is our natural response. But Peter says, no, if he's Lord of your life, you're going re- to return a blessing for that insult. You're not going to get back at them. And thankfully, I had a roommate that reminded me of that. And then, number seven, be ready. And he mentions this in, in verse 15, our key verse, when Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. When he is Lord of our lives, we should be ready to tell others about him and how he's working in our lives. You know, when I, going back to my junior year in college, when I asked him to be Lord of my life, I was dating an agnostic. Uh, his name was Pat. Uh, we were dating. We dated for, I don't know, six months, maybe a year. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. But uh, we dated a long time, and Pat was like, I don't know that there's a God. Uh, he, he didn't declare himself an atheist. He just said, I'm not sure, but I don't think there is, but whatever. And at that time, you know, I wasn't walking with the Lord, so it didn't matter. And then I turned my life over to, to the Lord, to be Lord of my life. And he started to change my life. And I told Pat, Pat, um, I gave my life to the Lord this weekend. I asked him to be Lord of my life. And, of course, he had no idea what that meant. And I said, I, my life is changing. And his response was, you're just going through a phase. I give you one, two weeks, you'll be back. And so two weeks later, he called me. And I told him, I said, I don't think so. And he said, you will. I'll call you in two weeks. He called me two weeks later. And said, well, are you ready to go out and party? And I said, no, I'm not. And I said, I'd like to talk to you. And he came over to the dorm one night. And Bonnie, my discipler, we were sitting in the lobby. And Bonnie was sitting over on a couch over to the side, pretending that she was just somebody reading something. (laughs) And she was sitting over there praying for me while I talked to Pat. And I shared the gospel with them. I told them exactly, you know, I went through the four spiritual laws with them. I told them why I I wanted Jesus to be Lord of my life. And his response was, well, you choose. You choose God or you choose me. But I'm I'm not sharing you with God, so choose. And I said, I choose God. And he walked out, and I never saw him again. 
But you know, I could have never done that if I had not made him Lord and drawn from the power of his Holy Spirit living in me. I, I can, afterwards, I was like, I can't believe I just said that to this guy that I thought I loved and I, I knew he was going to walk out. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only as you put him on the throne and you give him control of your life can you do those things that there's no way you can do on your own power. And so we need to be ready, as he is Lord of our lives, we need to be ready to speak about him. To give a defense for why. And so that's, that's the, the last characteristic. When he is Lord of our lives, we exhibit the characteristics of Christ. We are Christ-like because he is Lord. He's in control. So we've looked at the meaning of what it means to sanctify Christ as Lord. We've looked at what that looks like. So now let's look at the third question, why? Why should we sanctify Christ as Lord? Why can't I just be in control of my own life? Why do I need to give him control and let him do as he pleases with my life? We sanctify Christ as Lord in our lives because of what he has done for us. And we look at verse 14 here. I mean, verse 18. This is the gospel in one sentence. Verse 18, he begins, For Christ also died for sins once for all. He knew. He only needed to die once. He paid the penalty. That was enough. It is finished. Why did he do that? Or not why, who did that? The just for the unjust. Jesus, the just, because he did nothing wrong. He didn't deserve death. He wasn't guilty. But he paid the penalty for us, the unjust. Why did he do that? so that he might bring us to God. He died so he could bring us to God because God wants a personal relationship with us. And our sin separates us from God and keeps us from having that personal relationship. And Jesus provided the way. How? The last part of that verse. Having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. He died a physical death for our sin, but then he was resurrected. And that gives us our eternal hope. That is the gospel. And when we stop and think about what Jesus did for us, why wouldn't we want to give him lordship? Why wouldn't we want him to be in control? You know, if he loves us enough to die for us and to go through what he went through for us, don't you think that he has our best interest at heart? Don't you think that he wants what's best for us? If he went to that extreme for us, why wouldn't we trust him with our lives? Because he knows the bigger picture. He knows what is best for us? 
So Peter talks about the death and the resurrection at the end of that verse. And then he moves into some difficult passages. And I first thought, oh, well, you know, we'll just skim over these in the lecture. Y'all have talked about them in the the small groups, but we're going to dive into these. And the first uh, difficult passage in this uh, section is verses 19 to 20 that tell us that Jesus went and he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because, to be honest, no one knows exactly what Peter is talking about there. No one knows. Even the scholars agree. We really don't know. We have... We have opinions, but we don't know what Peter means. So I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about something that we really don't know, but I think we need to at least address it. There are a number of interpretations for what that verse means. And I gave you three of them in your lesson this week, and I'm sure you've talked about them. But I'm just going to briefly review two common interpretations among evangelicals. And the first one is that Christ went to Hades between his death and resurrection, and he proclaimed the victory of his work on the cross. It's finished. I've defeated sin. Now, there's disagreement, though, of even the people who take that view of who are the spirits in prison. They don't agree on that. But there's pretty much general agreement across the board that he didn't preach the gospel to them. It was preaching victory over death, but not the gospel. And the reason why is because that would involve the doctrine of a second chance. Because they, they, were, they were dead. So there's nothing in the Bible that says that people get a second chance after death. So that doesn't make sense. So most scholars say that he didn't preach the gospel. He proclaimed his victory on the cross. And those who take that view, uh, they like this passage, they, they link it with Ephesians 4.9, where it says that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. And they say, well, that's what he's talking about. He descended into Hades after his death. Uh, they also cite the words of the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. So they point to this and say, that's when he descended into hell. Well, that's one view among, that's pretty popular among evangelicals. There's a second view that is also popular. I think uh, John Piper, uh, Tim Keller, a number of other uh, people that you're familiar with take this view. And that is that Peter is describing what happened in the days of Noah, not what happened after his death and before his resurrection. That Christ, his spirit, was in Noah, and he preached through Noah to that generation before the flood. But they rejected the message, and they were destroyed. So now... They are spirits in the prison of Hades. I know it's confusing, but um, that is a view that a lot of 
of, of people take. The second view, I have to admit, because I've even gone through, I actually like all three views. I think there's merit to all three. But the second view really fits the context and has the least difficulties with it. But to be honest, I don't know what Peter meant. No one knows what Peter meant. But those are just some of the possibilities. And it may be something that we hadn't even thrown out as an interpretation. We don't need to get bogged down in it because it's not going to affect our faith. So then why does Peter refer back to Noah and the flood? That's another question that comes up. Why all of a sudden does he go back to Noah and the flood? When some people say because he was talking about, you know, Noah's day with that view. But I think he referred back to Noah and the flood because in verse 18, which we just read, the gospel in a sentence, he was talking about salvation, Jesus dying for our sins. And now he gives a picture of salvation, a a typology, where in the Old Testament there's a type, a picture of something, and then it's fulfilled in the New Testament. And I think that's exactly what, what he's doing here. The ark is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ark saved Noah and his family from judgment But they had to put their faith in the ark to be saved. And then the flood is a picture of the judgment of God. The ark was the only way of salvation. And when the flood came, only those who had put their faith in the ark and got inside the ark were saved. All the people on the outside were destroyed. And so Christ is the only way of salvation. He is the antitype of the ark. I mean, he is the fulfillment of that. It's just a picture of salvation. The ark saved Noah. They put their faith in the ark. The flood was judgment. Jesus is our ark, but we have to put our faith in him to be saved. Those who are in Christ are saved from judgment. So I think that's why he talks about Noah and the flood. And then we come to the second difficult passage, verse 21. He says, corresponding to that, and I think that means salvation in Christ, talking about the ark. Corresponding to that, salvation, baptism now saves you. And that's where people get really hung up and go, okay, right there it says, baptism saves me. But Peter puts this parenthesis there and clarifies, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. And then he finishes his thought, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's that little parenthetical sentence there that clarifies it. So is Peter saying that water baptism saves us? No. And let me give you four reasons why that is not what he's saying. One, because that would make water the Savior instead of Jesus. And he, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Nothing about water baptism. 
Jesus is the Savior. So that can't be what Peter meant. A second reason why it's not talking about water baptism saving us is that it would imply that Jesus died in vain. If you could just get baptized and be saved, then why did Jesus even go to the cross and die? Why would he? If all you had to do was be immersed in water. A third reason is because the thief on the cross wasn't baptized by water. And Jesus said, surely you will be with me in paradise today. He put his faith in Jesus, but he wasn't baptized. But Jesus assured him, you're going to be in heaven with me today. And then a fourth reason from the verse itself, verse 21, when Peter says, baptism saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He's clarifying. He's saying, I'm not talking about the water. He's talking about something else. So what did he mean? We've talked about what he didn't mean. What did he mean in this verse? Well, let's read that verse again, verse 18, or verse 21. Corresponding to that, salvation, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that word baptism simply means to immerse, not just in water. Peter uses baptism here in this verse to refer to a figurative immersion into Christ as the ark of safety. And that ark of safety that will keep us safe from the flood of judgment, the water. It's a figurative uh, example, a picture We are immersed in Christ. We are in Christ. If we put our faith in Christ, we are saved from the judgment, from the flood. What saves us is being in Christ, being baptized in Christ. And you may say, well, where does it talk about being baptized in Christ? Paul talks about it in Romans 6. That whole chapter is about, and he says those words, you are baptized in Christ. That's what saves us, is putting our faith in Christ, and we become in Christ. So when we go through the ceremony of water baptism, we are identifying publicly with the death and the resurrection of Christ. It is simply an outward sign of what has taken place inside, spiritually. And so as we go under the water, we acknowledge that we've been buried with Christ, that our sins are washed away. As we come out of the water, we show that we've risen with him to new life. I have a new life now. Just like when Noah and his family got off the ark, they went into a new life, a new world. That is that picture, that symbolism of of, uh, baptism. Salvation is by faith in Christ, not by baptism. But we are saved by being baptized in Christ, putting our faith in him. And then Peter concludes this section in verse 22, and I love this verse. It's a great way to end that passage. He says, Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, 
having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. He's basically finishing this section by saying, He is Lord. He is on the throne. And one day, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. So Peter's message in this section was, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And my question for you today is, have you done that? Who is on the throne of your life today? Is he Lord, or are you Lord? Are you running your life, or is he running your life? If you're on the throne, I encourage you, just confess it, step down, and hand him the reins. And it may be that you have to do it every day. And every day, I ask the Lord to keep me off the throne, because I know my tendency. Keep yielding that throne to him. Submit to his lordship. Allow the Holy Spirit in you to empower you to say, yes, Lord, I will do what you want. I'm going to pray and then I'd like us to sing that chorus. How many of y'all know that chorus? He is Lord. He is Lord. Will y'all help me at the end after we pray? Um, so I'm going to pray, and then I'll just have a stand, and then if people can help me with sing it, we'll sing it. Father, uh, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. And Lord, I pray that every one of us in this room are sitting beside the throne and not on the throne of our lives. And that whatever fears that we have of giving it all over to you, that you'd show us that we can trust you. And that we can walk in the power of your spirit as we let go of control. And Lord, thank you so much that you are Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.